My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. More time is needed before Canada will be ready to offer medical assistance in dying or MAID to people whose only condition is a mental illness. That was the conclusion of a parliamentary committee report which came out earlier this week. John Scully suffers from PTSD and major depressive disorder, and to him, this decision came as a blow. I felt betrayed. I felt horrified. I felt aghast that they would so dismiss the mentally ill and the needs of the mentally ill with virtually sweeps of the pen and leave us with nothing. John Scully was first diagnosed with mental illness 40 years ago, and he says without made as an option, he's contemplating suicide. It leaves me with extraordinarily grotesque nightmares. I have tried every single method of treatment. For example, I've had shock treatment 19 times. I've had every chemical known to science. I've had all the quackeries and the vitamin C's and the B12's and all that nonsense. Nothing worked and nothing has worked and nothing will ever work. I was waiting for maid to give me the option of a decent, quiet, presentable death. Now I'm left with the option, which is the horror, the horror of suicide. Ottawa was due to expand access to MAID by March of this year, but government sources have told CBC News it now won't happen until after the next federal election, which has to happen by 2025. Dr. Sonu Gand is the chief of psychiatry at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. He testified in Parliament about the need for this delay. Dr. Gand, good morning. When you hear John Scully say that he feels betrayed by this delay, what goes through your mind? Well, look, you know, I, I certainly feel sympathy for Mr. Scully. You, you have to for anyone who is suffering. But I'm glad you raised his case because there's a serious misunderstanding if his case is being used to say why we should have pushed made expansion to mental illness this March. In fact, Mr. Scully's case is a perfect example showing why proceeding with that expansion would have been irresponsible. How I say so? that for two reasons. First, you know, Mr. Scully, as he very articulately and poignantly points out, he's had years of suffering and years of treatment. None of that is actually required under our made laws. And in fact, the people who were recommending how to implement made for mental illness uh, refused to add any additional legislative safeguards. And Unlike other countries, Canada has no what's called a due care requirement, meaning people can get made even if they haven't had access to treatment. And, and second, you know, obviously I can't make armchair assessments, but, you know, with respect, I, I'm, I, I don't know what's holding Mr. Sully back from being able to get made now if he wants it. His situation actually shows why we introduced our first made laws, not why we need further expansion. You know, he's in his early 80s. From day one, under the initial MAID regime, 
even under the initial reasonably foreseeable death safeguard, people were getting made for age and frailty. And it's also been publicly reported, including by CBC, that Mr. Sully has chronic kidney disease and severe spinal stenosis. You know, Kay Carter, in the initial 2015 Supreme Court decision, Mm. she suffered from severe spinal stenosis. And that's what our initial made laws were brought in for in the first place. If we move just beyond this individual case, um, one of the things that a patient has to have, in in the words of of the Supreme Court uh, and others, a grievous and irremediable medical condition to be eligible for MAID. If effective treatment isn't available, or if it takes months or even years to access that treatment, doesn't that effectively make the illness irremediable? You know, that's the crux of the question here with the mental illness expansion that was being considered. Because as you point out, the condition needs to be irremediable, meaning we have to be able to predict that it will not get better. All of the evidence uh, across the planet shows that we are completely unable to make those predictions with any honesty for mental illnesses. And it's very different than other medical conditions that are far more predictable. How is it different? How is it different? Well, this is what I'm, um, what I'm pointing out, that even when people have severe treatment-resistant depression, We know the predictions about whether or not they'll get better are wrong more than half the time, more than half the time. Literally flipping a coin is more accurate. And, you know, my clinical background had been previously from Princess Margaret Hospital in psycho-oncology, meaning cancer and mental illness, the interface with psychiatry and cancer. And when you look at things like spontaneous uh, remission rates with cancer, when people have severe symptoms and they're declining. And by spontaneous remission, I mean even with no treatment. You, you don't see spontaneous remissions. It's one in a hundred thousand to one in a million, it's estimated. With something like depression, even with no treatment, our naturalistic studies show that if you go out three months, six months, 12 months, by then you get over two thirds of people getting better, even with no treatment. Now, I'm not saying that means everyone gets better. But it does point out that it is simply worlds apart to be comparing the unpredictability of predicting mental illnesses versus these other conditions we're talking about. In some ways, that's at the heart of this, though, because this has been framed in a number of ways. One is as a human rights issue, that this delay violates violates the human rights of people with mental illness because their right to opt for MAID should be no different from somebody who has a physical illness like cancer or ALS, for example. And that that right was enshrined, I mean, it's in the charter, but that's what the Carter decision reinforced in some ways. Does it, does it not violate the, the rights of those with a mental illness? Well, it's actually the um, expansion activists who are arguing it's a breach of those human rights well, and it's, discrimination. It's, it's also those on the who, other side, on yeah. the other side, people are arguing that it would be discrimination to go ahead and provide made under uh, false pretenses. I mean, it's also people who, who as we, not just John Scully, but others who, who suffer from a mental illness, who say, this is our right, that don't treat us differently than somebody who has cancer or another disease that we have deemed and society may de- deem to be uh, untreatable, uh, grievous and irremediable. I completely agree with that. But what that also means is that as a society, we need to ensure we're doing what we can to help these people also improve and live with dignity, rather than just saying the only way 
to help or stop their suffering is to provide them a quicker death when they haven't even had access to care. As I'm pointing out, our laws don't require that. And there is one other issue which is crucial with mental illness, and that's the issue of suicidality. Only mental illnesses have suicidality as potential diagnostic symptoms. No other medical condition does. And the evidence shows us that we do not know how to separate that from wishes for psychiatric maid. The evidence in Europe shows us that. And that's why you see by a two to one ratio, more women than men getting made for sole mental illness where it's allowed. That gender gap should concern anyone. When you testified to Parliament, you said you can choose to go ahead with this, but you can't pretend that you weren't warned. You also said that you weren't a conscientious objector to medical assistance in dying. So is there a way to create a system that would that would address your concerns and allow those with a mental illness to be able to access MAID in future? And you know, Matt, I think that that is exactly the question that we need to ask and that we needed to have asked three years ago, rather than saying, oh, we know we will be able to do it and here's the deadline that it has to be implemented. So we do need to uh, understand, is there a way that under the law's requirements, we can actually make these predictions in mental illnesses? Because right now, there isn't. Is there a way we can actually separate suicidality? Because uh, right now, we don't know how to. And if we fail to do that, what we would actually be doing is exposing, in fact, the most marginalized to potential premature deaths. Because unfortunately, People with mental illness also disproportionately suffer from social distress, housing uh, insecurity, Mm. poverty, all of that. And we already are seeing that those kinds of social situations are pushing some people through to get made. Do you think we're already seeing? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think that those guardrails are possible? Well, to be honest, and I don't mean this flippantly, I think the only honest answer is... Right now, no one can know. We'd have to see whether we can determine those issues I've talked about, specifically for mental illness. But beyond that, I also think we need to take a hard look at what some people are already getting made for now. You know, when over one third are saying that feeling a burden is what is pushing them through that door, when nearly one in five are saying it's loneliness, and we have over 13,000 Canadians getting it, those percentages, those one-third percent, that one in five percent for loneliness and feeling a burden should be concerning. I'm glad to have you back on the program to talk about this. It is complicated and nuanced. Um, appreciate you being here. Thank you. Matt, thank you. And thank you very much for bringing the range of issues that need to be considered to your audience. Dr. Sona Gant is the chief of psychiatry at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and he testified in front of a parliamentary committee on the issue of medical assistance and dying. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Jean Marmoro is a family physician in Toronto who provides MAID and has been listening in. Doctor, good morning to you. 
Uh, good morning, Matt. I mean, this this delay wasn't unexpected. It's the second delay, uh, actually. Indeed. Um, but when you take a look at it, just briefly, we'll get into specifics. But but how do you feel about that decision to hold off? Um, I I was not surprised. Um, I think the whole issue has become such a political hot potato. Um, I was pretty sure they would delay it again, but I have to say I'm disappointed that it that it. Uh, that they have been able to do it because I think they're just kicking it down the road and I think it will not now come surfacing again until after the next election which will be 2025. So this is this is an intolerable delay I think. An intolerable delay. Well, I think I think we should have had the courage uh, to know that this is basically a charter rights issue of body autonomy and I think to not extend it to people who have mental disorders. I think I think we're throwing around the, the word mental illness very loosely here. And I think we are really talking about, you know, a specified DSM classification of mental disorder as the sole underlying cause. And I think that was meant to be brought into the legislation to really honor what the Supreme Court's decision was way back when, in you, 2016. You just heard Dr. Gann with a forceful um, argument suggesting that practitioners cannot reasonably and reliably assess whose condition is not treatable, whose condition is irremediable. Um, that there's an argument, and, and this was made in, in the committee uh, and, and in the report, that there can't be certainty when it comes to the irremediability of, of a mental disorder. I think when you when you were talking about assessing people who are making a formal request to have assistance to die, you're always going to be beset, at least in some part, at some point, uh, with the issue of are are we certain? Can we actually make these predictions with 100% surety? And I think when you're dealing with people, especially people who who's who are suffering. The, the, the foundation of assistance to die in Canada is based on grievous and irremediable suffering. We don't determine what that suffering is. We don't, we don't put a suffer meter on people and say, well, you're not quite there yet. I think we have to take people at their word when they say, I am suffering and I am asking for your help. Is there any difference between uh, uh, suffering through uh, a mental illness or disorder um, and, as I mentioned, cancer, ALS, any number of other diseases in which people have successfully sought medical well, assistance I, in dying. I think to say that cancer is one thing and a mental disorder is another is, is really disrespectful. Uh, and I think it stigmatizes and discriminates against people who basically do have a medical diagnosis um, that, that basically is the foundation. We also had to say uh, in terms of sort of enacting this legislation, that in order to meet the eligibility to criteria, you had to have a serious disease dis disability or disorder. So I think, I think to say that yeah, we can talk, we can put everything in one lump basket, but take anybody with a diagnosis of a mental disorder and put them outside the box and say everyone else is in, but you're out, and you will stay out until we have decided that we have enough information and know enough. Uh, to say that you're actually going to qualify. What about the issue of suicidality that Dr. Gann brought up? Yeah, it, it, that's, that, is, that is really interesting to me right from the get-go because when I started doing this work, what I found, of course, was that some of the most serious suicide attempts were made by people with a medical illness um, who did not have a diagnosis of a mental disorder, and yet they made the most serious suicide attempts of anybody I'd seen. And when I actually, for down the road, when I would approve people and say, you're going to be eligible to have an assisted death, I would then hear from them 
what they had in mind if they, in fact, were found not to be eligible. So I think the question of suicidality comes up over and over again in always when we're doing assessments of people who are asking for help to die. Because when they tell us their stories, they tell us exactly about the desperation that they were feeling. Uh, at some point. What should we take from what's happening in the Netherlands, where something like 95% of made requests, specifically around, based on, on, on mental illness, were rejected in 2020? The cannabis yeah, think, seems like an outlier in some re- regards to this. No, I, I don't think we're an outlier. I, don't, I think we would expect almost the same thing, that if we actually open that door and let people who, who do have a diagnosis of a mental disorder into the box so that we can actually open that door with them and talk about it, we will actually know what is available, what have they done. I don't think anybody who is seriously doing this work would ever think that you're going to be a cowboy around approaching this, this question of you know, wanting to die because you have treatment-resistant depression or PTSD. So I think it's going to be always um, from the get-go, and this happens with people who have whose death isn't reasonably foreseeable, who are suffering with chronic illness and complex pain states, that we are going to have a team approach here. Nobody's going to do this on their own. We're going to involve the whole care team. Um, and I think that's what's being put in place across Canada over the past year in order to be ready to accept this entry point of people coming in. How do you create the social consensus for this? Polling suggests at the end of last year that something like 50% of those polled who support medical assistance in dying oppose this expansion. Well, I think Canadians are very civil people. And I think when they can see that the psychiatric community across Canada was split right down the middle on this, um, you know, I think Canadians, you know, sort of immediately pull back and say, well, my gosh, if the experts don't know what what they're doing, why would we support this? I think I think Canadians have heard it. I think they have heard the dissension and they have heard the kind of you know anxiety that people have around it. And they've said, okay, we back away from this. We can't support it. And you know and I know that well over 80% of people in Canada support medical assistance to dying. Mm-hmm. And I've put in place a model that I think is exemplary in the world. And I don't think anybody in Canada would think about doing this without kind of really carefully looking at what's going on in in the Netherlands and in the Benelux countries around this issue. We know it's going to be complicated and we know it's not going to be easy. And we know that nobody is going to just kind of launch this um, and kind of, you know, carry on cavalierly about it. This is very nuanced and will take a lot of work to make it happen. But I think to exclude people at this point and say, well, we're not ready, so you're not going to be ready either, um, is cowardly. cowardly. We we just have a minute or so left. When you mentioned that split, I mean, we just heard that split on this program. Within the the psychiatric community, What what do you make of that? Well, I've, I have been, I've been in I've been in this field for fifty years. I started in psychiatric nursing and then went into medicine, and I've practiced medicine for forty years. I there is not a family doctor in this country who does not have more than their share of people who, in fact, are profoundly affected with mental disorders. And you know, we have scratched our heads. And I'm of the era when Largactyl or clopromazine came aboard and literally started letting people out of mental institutions. And in in fifty years, Matt. I have not seen much progress. So so I think in terms of where psychiatry is, we're really young in the field of what we don't know. Um, and the problem is that we are not prepared to say that we don't know what we don't know. 
But I think to say that we, you know, hold the fort, nobody else, nobody gets entry into here until we do know, is to really condemn people to another 25 or 50 years. So I'm, I'm very interested in what's coming on the scene now in terms of psychedelic psychotherapy. But, you know, and I think the, I think it's there. I think the evidence has, has been there, but it's not new. It's old. It's been around for a long mm-hmm. time and we're just getting to it now. There, there is a lot of nuance in this, and it is an incredibly complex issue. We will come back to it in the meantime. Glad to have you here this morning to help us sift through it. Thank you. I'm very glad to put my voice up. Dr. Jean Mamario is a family physician in Toronto. Your thoughts on this? Welcome. Uh, as we mentioned, Canadians seem split on this as well. You can add your thoughts via email, thecurrent at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.